The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church Aid Study Guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC8. This is Secret Church 8, Episode 7. Possessions of the New Testament people of God, starting in Acts and moving through the letters. When we look at Acts, is the church setting precedent? In other words, we're supposed to do everything exactly like the early church did, or is the church showing principles? Are there truths that underline these, underlie these stories that we're supposed to believe and follow? Consider a both-and approach. Maybe everything in the book of Acts is not intended to be normative, like it must happen this way. There are some unique things that are happening in the book of Acts. At the same time, we are seeing the purity of New Testament community in a way that we, we want some of the things that we see here. And we are definitely seeing truths underneath it. Acts 2, 42 through 47, in the middle it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That is not a communist economy. This is not, not communism, not communist economy. This is a faith community marked by visible unity and voluntary generosity. That's the thing. This was not forced. This was not everybody put in the common pot and we've got, we're going to regulate how this is happening. Force it upon you, coerce it upon you. This is visible unity with voluntary generosity. It's a great picture. And then right after that, Acts chapter 3, is they care for this, this man who is lame from birth outside the temple. A spiritual mission. They're doing exactly what Jesus did. A spiritual mission. They proclaim the gospel with social ramifications. The man is healed. Spiritual and physical, both present there. Then you get to Acts 4. Listen to this. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Listen to this statement. There was no needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each man as he had, each one as he had need. And Joseph is an example of that. I love this. They selflessly shared their possessions while they boldly proclaimed the gospel. Both and. This was not social justice without the gospel. This was deep care with gospel, driven by the gospel. And they sacrificially cared for one another. No one was needy. Yes. What Deuteronomy 15, 4, it said, there will be no poor among you, at least for a small glimpse in the early church was a reality. No needy among them. And encouragement was evident in Barnabas. Now we see a totally different picture at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, who basically embezzle, swindle money. They valued spiritual appearance more than spiritual authenticity. They, they tried to put pretense, what it looked like they were giving when that was not true. Ananias and Sapphira, contrasted with Barnabas, simulated holiness for sacrificial kindness. Oh, God, give us a church culture that is not simulating holiness, but is marked by sacrificial kindness. And they lacked genuine fear before God. They lied to the Holy Spirit, to God. Fear deception. Tremble at the prospect of trying to deceive God. Fear distrust. Tremble the prospect of distrusting God. Fear disobedience. Tremble the prospect of disobeying God. And Ananias and Sapphira are struck down dead. That will hurt your church attendance the next week. Acts chapter 6. 
widows are in need. They need deacons to rise up to help the widows. The community of faith cares for members. There's a responsibility the community of faith has to care for one another. No follower of Christ should be in need or want. That's what elicited the need for this. Community of faith cares for members and then appoints leaders. These deacons who do this. That's Acts chapter 6. Then you get to Acts chapter 8. Simon the magician. Some have called Simon the father of Christian materialism. When he saw the Holy Spirit, this dude saw dollar signs. Look, if I had this power, look at all the money I could make. And the point of Acts 8, 18 to 23 and surrounding with Simon, God is not a means of financial gain. God is not a means of financial gain. Beware. Beware the danger of misdirective motives. Simon was doing this for himself. Whose name are we living for? Beware the danger of misunderstood power. Spiritual power is not about money and miracles. It's about prayer and proclamation. Beware the danger of misplaced faith. Basically, Peter confronts Simon and says, your heart is in the wrong place completely. Where is your heart? Additional observation in Acts an increasing number of Christians possess wealth as you move throughout Acts. You see people who, who have, have successful trades. You see people who are hosting churches in their homes. There's, there's some people who have wealth. They were recognized, church in, church in Acts, recognized for their generosity. You see them giving, full of good works, acts of charity, giving generously. Recognized for generosity, they were known for their hospitality. You see them sharing homes with one another. You also see, as you keep moving on, an increasing tension between the church and the materialistic culture around the church. Increasing tension. Paul delivers a Philippian slave girl from demon possession, and they're thrown in jail because they're disturbing the city. Then in Acts 19, Ephesian Christians start burning their magical scrolls. Some scholars estimate this about $6 million in today's economy just sold there. Wouldn't it be awesome if the gospel had that kind of effect on the pornographic industry in our day? And that people were being saved and their hearts being changed and, and billions of dollars spent on that. It was all burned instead of being instead of being indulged in by people in the church. God do that. It's huge. But it was it was causing problems. The gospel will create problems in a materialistic culture for the advancement of, the material, of materialism. Increasing poverty in Jerusalem, this is another trend we see, necessitated a sacrificial offering from churches in other areas. There was, there was a major need in Jerusalem that we're going to see reflected in these letters that we're about to go through. All right, James. Oh, James. In a nutshell... <laughs> Probably the first Christian letter or sermon that gives extensive treatment to poverty and possessions. We see wealth and poverty mentioned. James 1, 9 through 11 talks about how earthly riches are temporary. Grass withers, flowers fall. The rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. Religion, James 1, 27, religion of God our Father accepts his pure and faultless to look after orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The church is marked by sacrificial care for those in need and by clear separation from the ways of the world. Doesn't look like the world, which leads right into James chapter 2, where he confronts favoritism and the fact they were showing favoritism to the wealth. And he says, no, 
No, and this is basically an outline of that whole passage. We're captivated by the glory of Christ. We see Knowing who Christ is, we see his supremacy over the wealthy. We don't need to honor the wealthy because they're rich in money. We honor Christ. He's rich in glory. We don't, we see his supremacy over the wealthy and we remember his sacrifice for the needy. Christ became poor so we might become rich. So why are we exalting the wealthy in our meetings together, church? This is what James is saying. Captivated by the glory of Christ, gripped by the grace of Christ. So when we remember, Christ reverses our status in this world. Those who are poor in spirit and neglected in this world will one day be rich in spirit and glorified in the world to come. And Christ transforms our standards in this world. We, we live differently. We don't look at other people by the same standards we did before. We've been brought up by Christ, devoted to the law of Christ. And he just attacks favoritism. Favoritism disrespects man, disrespects man, and dishonors God. Favoritism disrespects man and dishonors God. And he talks about how mercy triumphs over judgment. We are cognizant of the judgment of Christ. Our words will be judged and our deeds will be judged. That's the end of that passage right there. Our words will be judged, our deeds will be judged. And we're a reflection of the mercy of Christ. As we have received mercy, so we extend mercy. Am I leaving, leaving you behind here? Sorry. Oh, well. We extend mercy. <laughs> if we do not extend mercy, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy. We've got we to move it. Um, as we have received mercy, so we extend that which we've received. If we're not extending mercy, then we show that we've not received mercy. I'm sorry. That was rude. I apologize. I apologize. I feel bad. Um, we extend mercy. If we do not extend mercy, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy. James 2, 14 through 19. We've talked about this some already when we were talking about the gospel. Faith in our hearts is evident in the fruit of our lives. You can't say, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed to those who are in need. And say you have faith. That kind of faith is dead. People who claim to be Christians but fail to help poverty-stricken fellow believers are in fact not saved. Now, again, it's not saying you need to help poverty-stricken fellow believers in order to be saved. It's saying your faith is dead if you look at poverty-stricken fellow believers and you do nothing. It's not New Testament faith. Acts of mercy are not means to salvation. We're not saved by what we do. James makes that clear. Acts of mercy are necessary evidence of salvation, the natural overflow, evidence of our salvation, just like we've talked about. Tim Keller said, mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not optional or in addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the sign of genuine faith. Ultimately, deedless faith is useless faith. Deedless faith is useless faith. Faith that does not act is not faith at all. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. The demons believe God, James says. It's not mere intellectual assent. Faith is not simply an emotional response. Faith involves willful obedience. Faith acts. Faith acts. That leads to James 4. I tell you what, James 4 really doesn't address as much when it comes to possessions. So move past that. Um, 
to did the first part of James 4, James 4, 1 through 4. Go to James 4, 13 through 17. James 4, 13 through 17. We can become so consumed with the material realm that we become blind to spiritual realities. What we need to see, what James is talking about, he says, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know that. God is sovereign over our life and death, and God is sovereign over our activities and our accomplishments. Do not think next year the market will be better. You don't know that. You don't even know if you'll be here next year. God's sovereign over these things. And then you get to James 5, 1 through 6, and it is a scathing confrontation of, and it's unbelieving rich here in James 5. Unbelievers who are rich. God is coming to judge the sinful. He's coming to judge the sinful. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That is not seeker sensitive. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Judge the sinful for hoarding wealth, for hoarding wealth. The treasures on earth were going to bring about their torment in eternity. Their possessions were accumulating while people were, were dying. Hoarding wealth for living in self-indulgence. It says you're gorging on food. You're like a cow about to go to the slaughter. They were overfed and unconcerned. God, may that not be so in us, your people. They would be judged for condemning men. The oppression of others would lead to their own damnation. God was coming to judge the sinful. And then he says to the believers there in James 5, but be patient, believers. God is coming to deliver the faithful, particularly those who are poor and struggling. God is coming to deliver the faithful. So that's James. Then we get to Paul. Think about Paul for a minute. Like Paul before Christ, prosperity. Most likely had means, highest of education, great family. Paul after Christ, suffering. Everything changed. Stoned, beaten with rods, 40 lashes minus one, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, danger in the wilderness, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger, danger. Before Christ, prosperity. After Christ, suffering. So look at his letters, Galatians. Galatians 2.10, remember the poor. We're just going to look at, at all the times where Paul mentions the possessions. Amidst theological controversy, which is what Paul's addressing in Galatians, there was no debate concerning the need to help the poor. Then you get to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 10. Some people believe this whole passage is a reference to possessions. And I don't don't know if the whole thing is. I'm not sure if I've bought into that completely. But there are implications here. Four enemies of spiritual community. Self-centeredness, pride basically. Self-righteousness. This is what was underlying the issues in Galatia. Self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and then self-esteem. Always concerned about asserting themselves. And, and, and what Paul does is he gives them five essentials to combat that. Confront one another in your sin. Comfort one another in your struggles. Don't really, don't really do as much as possessions. But then share your resources generously. He says share. Uses the word koinonia that's used for fellowship in the New Testament. Talks about sharing with one another. Sow your resources eternally. Sow. You'll reap what you sow. You'll reap what you sow. So sow wisely. 
and then spend your resources selflessly, especially, Galatians 6 says, especially for the household of faith, especially for the sake of the church. So that's the picture we see in Galatians. First and second Thessalonians, there are a lot of people in Thessalonica who were not working. They, they were talking all the time about the second coming of Christ. And so some of them had quit their jobs. And so Paul writes a letter to them and says, get a job. That's second Thessalonians. And what Paul is saying to them is avoid idle people. Avoid people who aren't working, just sitting around doing nothing. Avoid idle people. Work for your possessions. Get a job. There's a lot of other things there as well. First Corinthians, this was a trouble-filled church and likely only had a small number of people who had means, who had wealth. But the implication is that those people who did have a lot were causing a lot of the conflict in the picture here in First Corinthians. First Corinthians 4, 8 through 13, Paul contrasts their leader's prosperity with his poverty. And Paul says, you're living in ease while the rest of us are fighting a battle out here. And in this disparity, Paul asserts his credibility. Some of the leaders there were trying to undermine his credibility. And so he is, in part, asserting his credibility here. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the passage where where you've got a a sexually immoral man that's in need of church discipline, most likely a wealthy man, most commentators think. But what's interesting, listen to this. Listen to this. Right in this passage, 1 Corinthians 5. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. The church must discipline in situations of sexual immorality and the church must discipline in situations of material greed. That's profound. What does that look like? And the Christian must repent or be cast out of the church. Repent or miss out on the kingdom. Serious stuff. And you get to 1 Corinthians 9. This is, this is where Paul talks about whether or not leaders should be paid for what they do in the church, particularly teachers of the word. Paul asserts that leaders who sow spiritual blessings in the church should reap material blessings from the church. It's kind of tough to talk about this without sounding a little self-serving here at Brook Hills. Um, But the interesting thing was Paul yielded this privilege in Corinth because he believed that was better for the gospel. Paul wanted to be unattached. He wanted to make sure it was clear that he was not attached to anyone. There was, there was, they're paying him to say this or that. Paul wanted to be above reproach. And so in Corinth, he didn't do this everywhere, but in Corinth, he said, he said, I'm not going to take these material resources. Then you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You've got to go back and look at this passage in light of the ramifications it has for possessions because what was happening is rich people were coming in to the gathering of the church and they were getting drunk and isolating poor people over here and then they, would, they were celebrating with all their stuff, poor people over here, and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper, Paul says, necessitates concern for the Lord's body, the church. You've got gluttons and drunkards hungry and impoverished, to partake of the Lord's Supper while ignoring the poor misses the point. Paul says, you drink your judgment and you risk your life. That's, that's huge that we should consider how we are showing concern for the needy before we take the Lord's Supper. And if we are ignoring or neglecting the poor, then we, we are missing the point of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away all I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing apart from Christ's love. Giving away everything you have is meaningless. 
That doesn't mean, well, don't give away everything. It means love. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4 talks about a weekly offering that was taken for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.